This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I am so happy to be with Margaret Wilkerson Sexton this morning. She is the author, obviously, of The Revisioners and A Kind of Freedom. Her third book, On the Rooftop, is just out. And part of my very good mood is because I spent the morning listening to Dinah Washington because of On the Rooftop, and I spent a lot of last night listening to Ben Webster. (laughs) (laughs) And now, Margaret, I'm convinced I need to start every morning with Dinah Washington because of you. (laughs) I love it, and I want to do the same thing. I don't think it occurred to me that outside of the research process, I should be doing the same thing. It was such, such a treat. Oh, that makes me so happy. This book, though, On the Rooftop, is slightly different from the earlier books. You have an NAACP Image Award for the Revisioners. You were longlisted for the National Book Award for A Kind of Freedom. And I really, this book, I think, is a little different in a lot of ways. So would you set this up? Would you set up On the Rooftop for listeners, please? Sure, I would love to. And thank you so much for having me, by the way. In On the Rooftop, we meet Vivian. And Mm -hmm. she's a widowed mom of three girls. Um, who are approaching womanhood. And she's come to San Francisco from Louisiana. She's escaped the Jim Crow South. And and yet she's escaped it. And yet it's still very present in her memory and in her mindset. And um, she's poured all of all of the fear she has around the insecurity of her past and around being widowed unexpectedly. She's poured all of the uncertainty she's had around that into these girls and into specifically into them achieving this dream of stardom as right. a singing sensation group. She gets this news that maybe there's a there's a path for them to stardom, you know, one that she's only dreamed of, but that's now materialized, maybe. And she takes this news back to the girls and she learns that the girls aren't necessarily in agreement with her and mm-hmm. with her vision. And, you know, there's there's the whole journey that you'll see the girls undertake as they decide what they want to do, if they want to do that, if they want to do something else. And And then more centrally, there's this journey that Vivian's going to go on to find security within herself. We're in San Francisco in the Fillmore District in the 1950s. Yes. So they've come over and and through the Great Migration, there are many, many Blacks who have migrated here Mm -hmm. um, from the South and from other areas of the country. And they've come with all of this optimism and all these dreams for racial equality, which, of course, they learn very soon isn't going to be as uh, realized as they had hoped. But the optimism is still there as we open this book. And um, and they've brought their culture with them. So although they're in San Francisco, there's this rich, textured Louisiana aspect mm-hmm. of the book. In many ways, it felt like I was writing about New Orleans again. And then there's this jazz era aspect of it. They're surrounded by music. They're immersed in it. Um, it's during the Harlem of the West, as I learned. Mm-hmm. Um, it was described uh, in my research. You really feel the optimism and the the musical satisfaction, fulfillment, and the the hope and the electricity of everything that's going on in this time. You can really feel that in this in this small community in the Fillmore in San Francisco in the fifties. And we'll also see, you know, as the book goes along, we'll also see, you know, not only Vivian's dreams and not only the daughter's hopes, but also this community start to potentially mm-hmm. uh, be threatened. So, you know, your earlier books obviously were set. In New Orleans, and Vivian does have a foot back home in a way. I mean, she has yeah. her memories. She grew up there. But why this moment in San Francisco? I always wanted to base this book on Fiddler on the Roof. I I had this idea, you know, really before any of my other books came out, that I would at some point 
write a book based on Fiddler on the Roof. And it the idea came from my mom, to be uh-huh. honest. Her idea was totally different. She thought it should be exclusively Katrina centered and that then that mm-hmm. would be the parallel dislocation. And she thought that like the climactic scene would be these people on the roofs of their homes, you know, with signs up saying, help me, just as, you know, the images we mm-hmm. saw mm-hmm. in 2005 in reality. And um, I just, I just did not have it in me to write another Katrina book. I felt yeah. that a kind of freedom was, a, yeah. you know, to the extent that I felt comfortable um, commenting on Katrina because I had moved away by that time. I felt that that was my Katrina book. And mm-hmm. you know, we have the yellow house and, and, um, and we have Jasmine Ward and we've had so many people who have, um, who have passed really meaningful commentary on that storm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's more to come, but I just didn't feel like that was my ministry um, really period, but it's specifically in the time that I was writing this book, mm-hmm. because I was writing it during the pandemic. And mm-hmm. I feel like I was just depressed enough as it was. And I didn't need, you know, as we all were, you know, nothing, nothing over the top, but just, you know, we were all really struggling. Um, and, you know, my family was relatively privileged and, and everything was fine, but, um, but we still, there was this, there, there was, of course, just this feeling of melancholy that that mm-hmm. just, you know, uh, overwhelmed the country and the world. And I felt that I didn't want, one, I didn't want to be wallowing in that feeling in the time that I create where I can just be in solitude and where I can really be in charge of the mood. Like mm-hmm. this is, you know, writing a book that's, or, or any kind of creative activity, that's the time when you really are in charge of the mood. And nobody else can intrude upon that. Nobody else can come in and decide what vibe I'm going to create in that time. And I, for the first time, I had never had this urge to make it a happy mood. I had truly never had that urge. Like, I actually love, I'm drawn to books that are sad. Mm-hmm. I like to create books that are sad. Um, and especially because the commentary that I'm making, usually the the social commentary that I'm that I'm making, you know, it, it the, the the issues I'm addressing they deserve the tone of sadness in order to honor the gravity of them, you know, in some ways. And yet having said that in this particular book, I think I wanted to combat the feeling that we were already inundated with and even the feelings that are attached to, to, um, to social justice issues. I wanted to combat the feelings of anger and, and, and helplessness and all of that with joy and, you know, I, I, and so I, I thought, yeah, I'm writing about gentrification and, 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 you know, it's the fifties and, you know, these are black women. They're, they're, you know, very limited just because of what we know of history. And yet I want to focus on the aspects of their lives that were positive and that were joyful and that were enduring and resilient. And, um, and it makes me so happy that people have picked up on that because it was a very subtle, you know, it was more of an intention. It wasn't that I did anything like active. It wasn't like, I'm only going to write these scenes where she's happy. You know, it wasn't right. anything conscious. Right. <laughs> it was just a, a subtle intention. And so it makes me so happy that people are actually like picking up on the tone. It, it's such a, it's an invisible piece. I love Vivian and her daughters, Ruth and Esther and Chloe. You as the writer, you know, you shouldn't be picking favorites, but as I said to you before we started recording, <laughs> Esther is my gal. I love her. <laughs> I'm so fond of her. And it's partially because she's a bookseller yeah. and, you know, we, we like to hang out with each other, but she's also wrestling with so much and we'll, we'll get to each of the sisters without revealing too much, obviously, because we don't want to spoil the book. And then there's, of course, Chloe, who is the baby of the family, but how did On the Rooftop start? I mean, you talked about wanting to write Fiddler on the Roof, but 
Did one of these women show up first? I mean, did you, these characters are so good. These women are so good. Thank you. That's a good question. Um, how, how did they show up? Well, you know, I had to find this parallel displacement mm-hmm. um, because I was truly trying to set it up like a, like a fiddler on the roof right. um, uh, in conversation with fiddler on the roof. I was, I was considering creating a, a parallel displacement, like something that mm-hmm. hadn't really happened um, at some point in history. And just, I was actually toying around with like creating this black commune that had come about like post-Civil War and had never been touched by any other culture or race. Um, but it just became too much of a project. And I, I just didn't want to use my energy, my creative energy in that way. Um, mm-hmm. So I started researching and I found out, I, I had no idea that there was a right. Harlem of the West. I had no idea that there the urban renewal project had happened. I had no idea that thousands of black people have been displaced from the film war. Of course, I live in the Bay Area, so I've seen the impact of that, but I didn't know how far back it traced. Right. And um, and so once I learned about those, basically those components, the Harlem of the West, the, the huge infusion of jazz, um, the infusion of, of, of Southern culture in this community that, that it recently moved for, for the war, um, it just kind of fell together. It's one of those things. It happens all the time where the pieces just fall together mm-hmm. and it becomes very clear. Like I, I felt like somebody had given me a gift in a way because, you know, just having those, they're like landmarks, you know, to anchor me in the book, like the mm-hmm. culture, the jazz, they just, they add so much texture. And so just, just knowing that all those pieces could fit together and 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 create you know the parallel that I was looking for, and I'm trying to I'm trying to remember if uh, if Vivian came to me first, and I'm sure that she did. Right. I mean, I'm sure right. that she did. She's such a formidable character. Um, <laughs> I, I, I it, originally it was it was mostly from her perspective. You didn't hear as much from the girls, mm-hmm. but I'm glad that we changed that. But I'm pretty sure Vivian came to me first. Just kind of this, and I always knew she would be widowed. Or, or something that she would be alone. Well, I needed someone to stand next to Tevya, you know, the, the, the yeah, main yeah. character in Fiddler on the Roof. And so she had to be a very tough, a very tough character. But I, you know, there are some ways in which Tevya is a little bit like hapless and controlled by his wife. I, I couldn't have that for her. And so I needed her to have blind spots too, though, because she, I mean, she clearly does to have like, yep. really believe that all this was going to go the way she planned it, just by virtue of the fact that she wanted it. But um but, you know, I wanted her blind spots to be endearing and to mm-hmm. not necessarily detract from from this, you know, from this this force that she is. She's also a woman of her time. She is very much of this place, of this time, of her social standing. Yeah, that's true. She ends up in a relationship with the preacher. <laughs> <laughs> Who I'm going to point out as a guy who basically could not make his own dinner. And if it weren't for his congregants bringing him dinner, he might. Yes be a little out of sorts. And, and yes. her first response is, huh, never occurred to me to bring you dinner. I love that. <laughs> Such a I great moment. That. Isn't that funny? And it's like, dude can't make ice. <laughs> I mean, he can't make ice. And yet, I mean, he gives a lot of Im- impassioned sermons throughout yes. the book. And yes. he's obviously very good at what he does, but he's not particularly great at taking care of his. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and here's Vivian like, well, I guess I'll feed you. I guess I'll take care of it. But she is also, she has had the great love of her life. Her husband, Ellis, the father of her three daughters, Ruth, Esther, and Chloe, and he has died. And they have some harrowing stories from escaping Louisiana, obviously, in a period of, well, horrible time in Louisiana's history. And so here she is 
in San Francisco. And she's not quite a stage mother, but she sort of is. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> because it's the setting of it and the context of who she is. It's mm-hmm. it's interesting to like to position her as that. But no, I, I that's what one of the things I think is interesting about the book is that you know, someone could read it in this contemporary period and mm-hmm. and identify, you know, at least some aspects of her behavior and relate to it. You know, although although, of course, this is, you know, this is this this precedes the the that phenomenon in some ways. My brother is a professional tennis player. My mother uh-huh. is his manager. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I've learned a lot um, there. And, you know, again, it's it's almost always, it's almost all positive. Like it's, it's outstanding that, that Vivian even has the capacity, especially at this time, especially, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm, know, because mm -hmm. of what we know about history and who she is as a black woman. It's, it's amazing that she has the capacity to, to dream about this and then to also just to set it in motion. And that's sort of how I feel about my mom. You know, my mom was born in 1959 in Louisiana and, and yet she just, you know, so in, in some very severe limitations, and mm-hmm. and yet she doesn't ever limit herself. It's like yeah. whatever whatever dream comes to her, she's going to she's going to figure out a way to make it happen. And she's relentless with that. And and so without realizing it, although I think I think my husband realized it when I was writing the book that it was that, that I was getting some ideas from my mom. I, mm-hmm. I didn't consciously realize it. I think I was borrowing from some of her traits. Um, of right. course, Vivian is very much her own character, but some of those traits like that, just that, that relentless, you know, drive, um, and the ability to draw people into a dream with you is kind of amazing. And motherhood is clearly something that Vivian loves, but also there was never an option for her. She was never not going to have children and she was never not going to get married. Like that was always just going to, and again, we're talking about America in the 1950s. There were not, you could be what a nurse, a teacher, yeah, maybe a secretary. Like you didn't, if you were a woman, you really didn't have a lot of options. There was also housekeeping and and things like really you were, you were stuck. You were really, really stuck. And so here's this woman who's kind of like, well, actually my daughters don't have to live like that. And yet her oldest I know. You know, know. this is not for me. We think, okay, that's great. Ruth, choose your path. That's great. You you can do, and she marries a drip. Yeah. He's he's a drip. Well, and you know, it's it's interesting because I, you know, reading it in 2022 and, Mm -hmm. you know, from, from, you know, with hindsight and with like all this new age parenting stuff, um, I'm like, oh, you know, Ruth should be able to do whatever she wants. Like you said, right. you know, it's her life. Right. Why Why should she have to? Yes, it's stardom, but it, it's it's almost noble that she doesn't want to chase that right. path, you know. But yeah, when you think about it from the perspective of Vivian, who, is, who has escaped these harrowing circumstances and all she wants to do and all she knows how to do to protect her children is to give them is to pass this dream along to them. And and just have them accept it. It's almost like I'll do the legwork for it. All you have right. to do is accept it and show up. And they're not even meeting her there. And I I think, you know, I've said this before, but I think it, it really has nothing to do with the singing. It's just about how can I keep these children safe? How can I keep myself right. safe in a world where it's just impossible for a black woman in, th- in this time period um, who's paying attention to circumstances to feel that sense of safety? 
And how can, and I know that from my own experience and I know that from the past, you know, this is from Vivian's perspective. I know she Mm -hmm. she would know that. And, and the only thing that she feels that gives her that anchoring is this, they're not going along with it. Well, and Ruth too was sort of a second mother to her younger siblings because Chloe was, you know, as some people might call her the dividend. She was a surprise baby. And here's Ruth as a very young girl trying to help take care of her two younger siblings because mom's working. Yeah. And mom, you know, has some strange shifts sometimes and, and Ruth has to be. So in a way, you know, mothering a tiny person is not as alien to Ruth at her age as it might be for some. That's true. It's, and it's interesting that because um, in some ways you would expect that because she's done it and she's had to do it, she would be so eager to be free of any kind of, mm. of the burden of that mm-hmm. kind of role. But I think what Ruth has never had and what, and what she's always wanted is this traditional family. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, I think that Ruth has been, it's interesting because I think Vivian wishes she could have the opportunities that Ruth had being born a generation later. Mm-hmm. Um, and having this mother who has, who has the capacity to have these dreams materialize. I think Vivian wishes she could have that, but I think um, Ruth has been watching Vivian with a sense of awe, just mm-hmm. who, just for who she is, just for being, yeah. you know, just for working at a hospital, you know, just for being a mom, just for showing up every day, just, you know, just for being that maternal presence. And, and it's, it just is interesting that like the things that you, that you that you despise about yourself, other people are watching and they, and they actually appreciate you for it. And, and that's how it is with that dynamic. Ruth would want to be like her mother. Mm-hmm. She would just want that, that father figure there as well. And for Vivian, I mean, that's the, to, I think that's the least remarkable thing that Ruth could ever aspire to do. Which brings us to Esther, the middle sister, who, yeah. unlike Ruth, really does want to be on the stage and she's just not quite there. She's the one who's sort of singing over here when she's supposed to be singing in the other direction. She's just, she has the desire. She doesn't quite have the talent. And she's working in a bookstore, but she finds her own path. And her journey is particularly fun uh, for fellow bookseller. Yes, I'm talking about a fictional character. (laughs) As if, (laughs) you know, she's standing down the street from me. But, I mean, it is, when you think about the interchange between words and music, and words on the page. I mean, it's it's all of a piece. And Esther does have to step away to find essentially her voice. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, it's interesting. I didn't always have it that she that she didn't have the skills. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a new development, very new, actually. They all have these different paths and they're all so distinct. So, like, you know, one, one is really gifted at it. Ruth is really, really gifted. Mm-hmm. If she wanted mm-hmm. to, she actually could do it, but doesn't want to. And then you have Esther, who of course has this old resentment toward Ruth anyway. And, mm-hmm. then, and then compounded by the fact that if she had half of Ruth's talent, she could right. take off with this. But I love that the gift in her incapacity mm-hmm. is, is to lead her to something that she actually can excel at. And I don't right. know that she even would have envisioned that for herself, that, that there was something out there that she could excel at. You know, it's funny. I think I think she, it was just so natural to her to have the gifts of writing and to have the gifts mm-hmm. of reading. And, and I don't think she, because it was so natural, I don't think she thought of it as anything remarkable enough to mm-hmm. pursue. And then, you right. know, of course she has her, her mother who, um, who would never dream of, of, you know, applauding that. So right. the only way that she would ever get applause is through this, is through this precise path. And, and Esther's the type of person 
who swears she doesn't need that. She swears mm-hmm. she doesn't need that applause and that recognition, but she does. And so she, she ends up, you know, trying to do what her mother wants her to do, even though if you ask her, she would say she has no regard for her mother's wishes and she, and she has no respect for her mother's dreams and, and all of that. It's interesting. I, I, I see why, I see why she was your favorite. I feel like, um, <laughs> yeah. And I don't, I don't think I really don't think I do have a favorite, but right. I see why she was, because I feel like, um, her journey was just so satisfying. Um, she, she's, she'd really been through so much and, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think her journey was, was one that you really don't see coming. And, um, I didn't see it coming as the writer. This is not a story to be rushed. I will tell you, like just reading through, and of course I had my soundtrack as I explained at the top of the show, but I love that. this is not a story to rush. These women, and we're coming to Chloe because Chloe, <laughs> <laughs> a lot happens for Chloe too. These women are all very distinct. And their relationships to each other are all very distinct. And yet all of them are very clearly Vivian's daughters. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) It's really great. They are clearly siblings and they are clearly Vivian's daughters. But this isn't a novel to rush through. This is not, it's not a slow read either. It's just very deliberate. It's very deliberate. And they will tell you their stories as they tell them. And it's really kind of a pleasure to sort of stroll through this book, which brings me to Chloe who surprises everyone because it turns out Chloe might have more ambition than anyone, including mom. Right. (laughs) Surprise baby. Surprise baby has more ambition than anyone. Right. Isn't that amazing? And that was, and that was a surprise. It's kind of like when you have family who, you know, you're 45 and, and yet when they see you, they still treat you. They, it's not even that they still treat you like you're 12. They still think that you're 12. Like mm-hmm. they, they have not been able to parse it together yeah. in their mind. So that's how I feel about Chloe. She's never, she's never really viewed accurately until she meets this person who hasn't been a part of this community. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not necessarily the most reliable voice, of course, um, as we learn, but at least, you know, this person sees her and at least he's, you know, he's, he seems good intentioned and, and I think that I think the draw for him, though, is just that he sees her. I think she's been hiding behind those two sisters, not mm-hmm. consciously, inadvertently hiding behind those two sisters and her mother. And also just the community, just the, yeah. the idea of having grown up with the same people and seeing the same people every day. They bought, you know, they boxed mm-hmm. her in and she can't get out. And then this person sees her and it kind of just, you know, it, she has been seeing herself, too. And it just awakens her to, yes. to what she's been seeing. The backdrop of the music and the community. And also I will say there may have been some snacking as I was reading on the rooftop because there are many, many meals that makes in me Vivian's so basement. <laughs> and I was like, I think I need a snack because she's raising money. I mean, her, her daughters are performing in her basement. It's an after hours club. Yeah. And she's, you know, yeah, she's feeding the community, but they're paying for it. Yeah. So, and that's a thing. They used yeah, to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Underground economy is real. Yeah. Yeah. But also urban renewal is coming for San Francisco, this particular piece of San Francisco. And there are hints of it. You don't have it sort of in your face, which I really did appreciate as I was going through. But a character would say something like, so-and-so came by and offered to buy my building or so-and-so offered to buy this or so-and-so. And you can see the community sort of wrestling because in some cases, the money is more money than they've ever had in their lives. 
And on the other side, there are some characters who are like, well, where am I going to go? I can't. I can't. This is all I have. This is my family's legacy. This is it. And that sort of push and pull of what happens. And ultimately, we know what happens. The city won and the development happened. And it happened. You know, it happened in New York and it happened in Boston. It's happened everywhere. It's happened everywhere, mostly to the detriment of brown and black communities. That's right. And to have this sort of looming over them, and yet you've still written a very hopeful novel. Oh, that makes that makes me happy because I do feel like um it was definitely a goal. My other books are of of are of course also about um social issues, particularly mm-hmm. ones affecting black people. And and I'll probably always do that. That's just where yeah. my attention goes. Um but it, and it again, it wasn't conscious. It wasn't that I sat down and thought, I need to make this book happier because I don't even know how to do that. Mm-hmm. I like I couldn't tell you how I did that. When I was writing this book, I think I just wanted to feel more joyful than I was feeling in 2020. And that's mm-hmm. when I started writing it. And um, and I think that somehow carried over. So it was like, yes, there's this looming threat coming. And it's and it's not to undermine the severity of the threat and the right. um, and the rep and the rep- reprehensible nature of the threat. Um, I don't want to do that at all because we know what it did and, and we know what it it continues to have ripple effects. Right. Um, it's not to say that, it, oh, it wasn't important, but it's it's more to say, I know about that. I don't want to spend my energy right now on that. I want to mm-hmm. create something that's going to be like a solace for people who have experienced something like that. I do think some of this was conscious because I remember okay. thinking at one point, I remember thinking, what kind of book would I want to be reading during a pandemic there you or go. after a pandemic? Right. And I just, I just didn't want to feel any more mm-hmm. of, of what we were feeling, you know? It was also nice to see the sisters have success. I mean, they are a yeah. draw at the Champagne Supper Club. This is not just their mother sitting around and saying, you know, practice your scales. Let's make. They're living in two separate worlds. There's the world when you go home and you're with your sisters and you're in your house coat and you're doing your hair and you don't have to wear a girdle. I'm so glad <laughs> you and I are not alive in an era where we have to. Oh, yes. oh. <laughs> I mean, can you? Well, you can imagine you wrote the book, but the whole girdling every. Oh, no, yeah. I'm glad that's in our rear view. Yeah. That's oh, right. I am very happy that's in the rear view mirror. But. Yeah. They do. They have success. They know how to operate. I mean, Vivian knows how to talk to the man that she thinks is going to represent. Like, she's she has not just fallen off the turnip truck and decided that her daughters need to be famous. She's like, no, they have this talent. I'm going to grow it. Let's make sure that we have success that is ours. Yeah. There's no point where Vivian is saying to her daughter, you've got to get married. You've got to have babies. You've got to do that. You've got to. Yes, she wants them to have singing success, but that's not what average folks do in this community. I know. I know. It's amazing. I, mean, I think she's just this just extraordinary person, mm-hmm. which is which is one of the reasons too. Like I she has to have these blind spots, right? But yeah. like I didn't want to give her too many because I don't want to undermine the degree of of power this woman has. Right. Maybe that's what it is. I mean she's just so powerful, especially mm-hmm. in a time where her power would have been so limited. Her right. her like obvious power would have been so limited. But she 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 has this I mean, Vivian is a nurse, for instance, in the 50s, you know, in San Francisco, which, again, is extremely extraordinary. So she's always had 
the 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 drive that gives her the capacity to 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 um to materialize these girls' success is it, it has affected her in other ways as mm-hmm. well. She's doing pretty well as a single mom, a widowed mom. Yeah, it it almost feels like the girls are trying to take her backwards because mm-hmm. some of them at least because you know her her vision is is just so very um you know prescient and um. Yeah, it, it's it, it's it's so ahead of her time. It's like um, I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed writing that because it I think maybe for the first time and I'm trying to think about my other books. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe maybe that was one of the one of the first times where I could actually like sit with a black woman I was writing about and have her be in that power. And it wasn't ever taken from her. Right. Like, it right. really wasn't, you know. That's part of what makes On the Rooftop different from the other books. I mean, I love the structure where everyone gets their sort of, pardon me, everyone gets their turn at the mic. Yeah. Um, Everyone narrates their piece. And I think it's important to be able to sit in their heads. I mean, a close third is always fun to read, right? Close third person is always fun to read. But I really did appreciate being able to sit. I think you can go deeper in some cases. There are some backstories that happen that I think it's really important for each woman to be able to narrate. And also... Everyone has a dude, and some of the dudes are better than other dudes. And I mean, I do love the preacher, even though he can't make ice. He really does love Vivian, and he sort of pushes oh, her yeah. to say, "Hey, listen, you know, you keep disappearing on me." Yeah, and and I can imagine for a man in the 1950s to be able to say, "Hey, listen, you keep disappearing on." Me. That feels like a radical act to say, "I yeah. actually need you." Like here I am, I'm widowed, and it's very unpleasant for me. But also, I really like you. I really like he's not playing around. He's yeah. just absolutely he's there in the moment. And it's kind of nice to see this older relationship instead of because I mean, you know, young love is always fun to see and and sometimes stuff works out and sometimes it doesn't. But watching these two sort of circle around each other. I loved it too. I thought it was so much fun to write. Mm-hmm. Um, the scene where they're talking about whether or not they love each other. Um, yeah. I, I, that was my favorite scene to write. Yep. Yeah, you you nailed it. Like you never see it. You never see, uh, you know, that kind of, well, you don't often see it between two older people. Right. And I, I liked that he was the one at the helm of it. Because right. I, again, like Vivian, I hadn't thought about it until this conversation, but she really does retain her power throughout this mm-hmm. book. Yep. There's nothing that comes and knocks her off. Yep. And like, and nor, and he will not either. Yep. And you, like you were saying earlier, like, she's like, oh, it, it didn't occur to her to ever bring him food. I, I love that. She's just, <laughs> <laughs> she's like, I, I guess I love him. You know, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't thought about it, mm-hmm. but you know, now that it's there, okay, sure. But it's not going to, she doesn't need anybody. Right. And, you know, and I love that journey that she takes to realize she doesn't need anybody. And she doesn't, she doesn't even need the sense of security. She thinks she needs that she's grasping Mm -hmm. for, you know, outside of herself. She doesn't even need that. She, she has what she needs. We've been talking too a lot about how this book has changed sort of from the earlier books. I mean, structurally, you do like the multiple voices, which I appreciate as a reader. But what did you learn book to book that you've taken into this one? So, you know, was there something you learned writing Kind of Freedom that you used in the revisioners and then something from the revisioners that you ultimately used in On the Rooftop in terms of craft? Because three novels in what, six years? Yeah, about that. It, yeah. That's, and a few others that didn't get published. So, I mean, you've been doing this for more than a minute, but 
it does also take a little patience and a little resilience and a lot of time. Thank you for saying that. And that's such a good question. Um, and it's true. I do write. I have this really irritating habit. I publish a book and then I spend a year working on another book and mm-hmm. then the book doesn't doesn't ever get published. This has happened like three or four <laughs> <Wow>. times. Wow. <laughs> okay. And okay. then I go and write the book that will get published. It's okay. like, I don't know if it's part of my process or what, but anyway, mm-hmm. I know I will tell you with this book, um, I was reading the vanishing half oh, a, again during book. the pandemic. I love that. Book. And, yeah, me too. I, I loved it. And I read it twice and I like yeah. bought it for people, not that I needed to, but I did. I thought this book takes place in Louisiana mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm from Louisiana yep. and, and I, I thought this book takes place in Louisiana, but this book really could have taken place anywhere. Like right. I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't as, as fixated on the environmental descriptions or the surroundings. Mm-hmm. It was more about those characters. I feel like she really brought me into those characters' interiors. And I just felt like I was almost being anchored by, mm-hmm. by, by a sense of knowing those characters and by a sense of being, you know, being in the world with those characters, if that makes sense. Like, you know, and I think with all, with all good writing, it's going to be like that. Like you mm-hmm. almost feel like, oh, I have a new friend that I met who's also going through something similar. And somehow by like, by virtue of learning about her experience, I'm, I'm being, I'm feeling supported and anchored, you know, it felt like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, you know, I don't think I'm going deeply enough into my characters. That's yeah. what I thought when I read okay. that, I thought I, I'm, I get very, very fixated on the research, uh-huh. I, okay. I, I, you know, and it's, I was going to say, I love research, but that's not even true. I don't love it, but I get really fixated on it. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a, I think that's a, something from that I, you know, learned as a lawyer. Right. And um, it's just like a habit. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting so into, you know, researching New Orleans and researching the historical aspect of whatever would have been going on at that time. And I just thought, you know, I think I'm not using one of my superpowers, which I actually love to talk about emotions. Like if you were to come to my house in five minutes, we'd be talking about whatever trauma uh-huh. you and I had been through. Like, I love that kind of stuff. So like, I thought, why aren't you using that? I mean, I know right. I, I've used it. I don't want to undermine the other two books because they're, I think, you know, I did that with them too, but I wanted to push it a little bit more with this book in terms of just like, just like connecting with the reader on an emotional level. It's yeah. almost like I felt like I was, I was, I was making the books a little bit too intellectual. I wanted my readers to experience what I felt when I was reading Vanishing Half. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel transported. It was a very difficult time. It was June, 2020. And I feel like somehow I've gone elsewhere and I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I, yeah, I've gone elsewhere and I, and I, and I feel better. And I just wanted, I just thought I'm going to focus on that this time. And I, again, I'm trying to think, how did I, how did I do? I tried to just go as deeply as I could, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like almost like if I'm having a conversation with someone and they answer the question, but it's not quite is they're not giving me quite enough, you know, of, yeah. of, of what their childhood was like or what it was like with their mother. Like I felt like I with my characters, I felt like I just pushed them as far as they could go. Yeah. You know, as yeah. far as I could go. Mm-hmm. I think it's a different type of orientation than I had a different type of focus than I had had for the first right. two. Can we talk about literary influences for a second? Sure. I mean, I'm so delighted that you love The Vanishing Half the way I do. I mean, there's that yeah. opening scene when we're in Los Angeles and the sister who's been living there is in her pool. And the melancholy oh. is 
so yeah. so deep and you're just like yeah. okay I, I, i'm in i'm yeah. in i'm here but i just that's the whole book is terrific but that one particular that i carry that around but you know, that's one way I think in conversation with the characters to get more out of them is to just kind of like push them into these harrowing situations mm -hmm. for them. And, you know, I'm thinking about like when the neighbor, remember in Vanishing Half with the neighbor is across the street, the black woman. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it's like, ooh, well, how is this going to go? You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. All of it. But okay, so now that I've derailed us and sent us off into Brit Bennett's Vanishing Happy, because <laughs> I will talk about that book any chance I get. You studied creative writing at Dartmouth as an undergrad, yeah. then you got a law degree. And yeah. then you decided, uh, maybe not so much with this lawyer thing. <laughs> but I mean, you've always sort of been reading and writing and thinking oh, yeah. about this. And so yeah. let's talk about some of the big names who made Margaret Wilkerson Sexton who she is as a writer. Yeah. Well, you know, of course I'll say Toni Morrison and that's mm -hmm. true. Yeah. I mean, she was, she was a beacon for so many of us. Um, I'm thinking, especially when I was in high school and, mm -hmm. um, and I would see her on the cover of magazines. I'm thinking particularly time magazine. It was just, I, 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 I mean, I mean, of course we also have Alice Walker who would have mm -hmm. been a beacon at that time as well. But I think just because at that particular period, Toni Morrison was, um, was, was so very prominent and was, coming into even greater prominence. Mm -hmm. I think that was the first time I thought, oh, there, there's a visible, there's a path here that I can visualize. Um, Edwidge Dantica is another. Oh, huge, oh, love yeah. Love I, love. I read her, um, her first novel and um, I, I, I felt like, oh, this is, again, this is something to aspire to. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. felt like the kind of writing I would do if and when I started writing. That's what it felt like. Like this is this is the style I would want to take on. One of the styles I would want to take on. Um, I love Octavia Butler. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. um, she was a huge influence for the revisioners, especially. Oh, totally. Um, I love um, I love Edward P. Jones. I love Jamaica Kincaid. Um, I'm I'm looking at the candy house behind you. I love yeah. Jennifer Egan. I love Elizabeth Strout. She's oh, another one who like all of the, all yeah. of her books, yes. all of her books, the things that she does on the page. Yes. And you yes. realize who's all of again with all of the, yes. for want of a better term, all of the Easter eggs and all of again, where uh -huh. characters pop up again. I'm like, oh, there you are. I know. <laughs> I know. It was great. It was and really, I just really feel great. Like it, I just feel like she's describing humanity for me. It's almost yeah. like I'm reading some kind of spiritual text. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's going to be my guidepost for humanity now. Like, oh, that's why I did that. Oh, that's mm -hmm. why these people would do this. Yeah. I just, I learned so much just, just even independent of the literary from her. So many, I mean, it, yeah. you know, this is such a tough question because it's like your favorite song. It's like, I don't remember, but um. <laughs> But yeah, there there are so many. I'm loving the people that are coming that are coming up now. Like you know, the more contemporary people that I look up to, like Nafisa Thompson Spires. Terry Jones is not coming up. I mean, she's right. she's been here forever, and I I just I've read each of her books at least once. Did you read Disha Filia's Secret Lives of Church Ladies? Secret Lives oh. of Church Ladies. Yeah. Oh wow! I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That like electrifying is not a yeah. word I love to use when I'm describing books, but I know. it is so appropriate for that I collection know. of stories. That, it is that first story. Wild. Yes. That first story alone, but yes. the entire thing. And I'm just, Oh, absolutely. And what absolutely. she does and the entire collection is <laughs> I know. so tiny. And it's I amazing. Know. It's it amazing. It really is. And 
I taught that book and my students uh-huh. were like blown away. I don't, I don't know if they, it, it, I taught it basically as soon as it had come out. So they yeah, hadn't yeah. read it yet. And they were right. just like, oh my God. But that first story, it just sets the tone. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. this is going to be doing something completely different. Yeah. The other thing is too, I was thinking about Edward Jones this morning because it's been a minute since. Oh, that's so funny. Anne, I think Anne Hager's children, right, was the last. Yeah. The all Anne Hager's children. Yeah, and that was 2006, so. and I was like, "Wait a minute!" I mean, listen, he's Edward P. Jones; he can oh, do he whatever he'd like. Do another thing, but Absolutely. I'm kind of like, maybe he's just hanging out. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm well. You know what I always <laughs> say, I, I, which is crazy, but I, I always remind myself of this. Um, you, did you know that it took him six weeks to write the Known World? I had heard that, and okay. is that true? I mean, I don't know, but I hope it is because I love the idea because. That is one of the most perfect story collections I, in the yes. English language. <laughs> and 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 the fact he said it wasn't that I didn't, you know, it wasn't that I'm yeah. some kind of like phenom and I wrote in six weeks, although obviously he is, but it was like I had just been thinking about it for decades. Right, right. And I, the idea that you can like do a lot of the work of a story in your mind is fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. That's another thing I'm going to try to do more of in uh-huh, the future uh-huh. is just like think about it more before I start. And then um, I'm also really curious about like having one person carry a narrative, just like from start to finish. I have not Mm -hmm. done that before. Right. And, and also just across generations, like, you know, folding generations into one person's life Mm -hmm. and just seeing how that would look. I'm just, I I would like to do that the next time. Well, I'll follow you anywhere. So I'm just going to take that all as signposts. Total signpost for whatever may come next, whenever it shows up. Oh, Margaret, this was so much fun. I get to start my day with Dinah Washington. I get to end it with you. This was excellent. Can we do this again, please? I would love to do it again. (laughs) This was amazing and such an honor, truly. Well, thank you. Thank you. And On the Rooftop is out now. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books for you to pick up when you come in for your copy of On the Rooftop. I'm Becky. And I'm Mark. And we're coming to you from our home store in Westchester, Ohio. And if it's all right with you, I'm going to get started. Yes, go for it. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, So when I thought of uh, a book to go along with On the Rooftop, I was kind of concentrated on that mother-daughter dynamic. And so I thought of Amy and Isabel by Elizabeth Strout. Oh, yay. Um, So you are probably familiar with Elizabeth Strout from Olive Kittredge, but this was actually her debut novel, and it is the story of Isabel and her daughter Amy uh, and their small town in Maine, and takes place kind of over one very hot summer. We get to hear both women's points of view, and um, it's, it's, it's a very kind of typical, I guess, story in that it's mothers and daughters who look at each other very differently. Um, and so, so those things are definitely brought to light. Um, Isabel moved to uh, the small town about 15 years ago when Amy was an infant. And she moved here just to start over, um, not knowing a single soul. Now we fast forward 15 years later, um, Amy is now 16. Um, and Isabel is pretty much the same person that she was when she first got there. Um, very self-conscious, very lonely. She works as a secretary in an office of other people, but just keeps her distance. And um, she really clings to that idea that appearance is everything. She's just a little socially awkward, quiet, reserved. Meanwhile, Amy at 16 is kind of looking at her mom and not really wanting to be like her. (laughs) She is... um, 
she's a typical teenager going through her mood swings. Um, she is discovering literature and poetry and her sexuality. And she develops a crush on a substitute teacher in town. And um, that crush is soon reciprocated. And what happens in the aftermath? The impact on uh, Amy and Isabel's relationship is massive. Um, it, this book just really explores the idea that despite our best intentions to not be anything like our parents, we a lot of times make the same mistakes that they did. Like I said, this is uh, her debut novel. You will see these characters again uh, later on in her multiverse that she's created. But um, Elizabeth Strout just does a beautiful job of really capturing that relationship. And I highly recommend Amy and Isabel. Mark, what do you have for us? Oh, I could talk about the Elizabeth Strout multiverse for <laughs> days. I love her so much. Uh, but we're not. I'm not here to talk about Elizabeth Strout. I'm here to talk about another incredible author, and that is Zadie Smith. Ooh. Yeah, I decided, I, I was thinking about On the Rooftop, and I thought about music and aspirations, and it made me think of these two characters in Swing Time by Zadie Smith. Smith is a household name, mm -hmm. um, as she should be. Um, she is prolific and wonderful and vital and sublime. I could just give all the adjectives for the rest of my days. Uh, this book follows two girls who are aspiring to be dancers. As they grow older, the natural talent of one and the expanding philosophies of the other uh, really pull the two apart and towards unexpected futures. Uh, the t story is told in uh, multiple timelines, uh, multiple points of view, uh, and it's got a lot of themes about race and fame, wealth and family and history, and the story of these two women and their diverging and converging paths is just astonishing as expected. It's also filled with a lot of very keenly observed details that I really think nurture that narrative. Um, she just knows how to spin a tale and spin a phrase. I love Zadie Smith so much. Um, and that is Swing Time, so please check it out. Yes. Well, really good choice there. Yeah, I think so. I think we picked two actually really great books. We um, always do. And I will say, On the Rooftop, I'm so excited to read this book. This uh, yeah. story just sounds incredible. I think it's going to be great. And I know that like, I read the, they, they were kind of comparing it to Fiddler on the Roof, but it, it reminded me a little bit of like Dreamgirls a little bit. Oh, too, yeah, kind of. I would idea. say, yes. Maybe it's sort of like a neat combo pack, Maybe I'd say. something. But Lovely. Well, anyway, that's all that we have for you today. Um, so thank you for um, checking in um, with us. Uh, you can always rate and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Um, and you can follow us at Barnes & Noble. Um, I'm Becky. I'm Mark. And we are coming to you, from, like I said, from our home store in Westchester, Ohio. You can follow us at BN Westchester. Um, or, you know, check us out on Instagram. So. Yeah, just find us. Exactly. So... Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Bye. Pour It Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.